You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Biosecurity is something that we do really well here in Australia, but it's not something that's on most of our minds unless we're coming back home from overseas or when there's an outbreak that makes the news. Having a good understanding of biosecurity can help us prevent bringing in unwanted pests and diseases onto our property and introducing them into the wider ecosystem, which can have devastating effects. Our guest is Jeanette Severs, a friend of mine on Twitter that goes as the Ag Journo, at Severs Jeanette. She's a well-established journalist and writer in this space, and we first decided to make this episode during the manure classification controversy you may remember from a few months ago now. G'day Jeanette, welcome to the show. Thanks Dan, how are you today? Yeah, pretty good in lockdown, but just making the most of it with a interview during what would normally be work hours. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, nah, it is. It's cool. So, Jeanette, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your career in journalism? Well, it's been a long one. So, I started in 1984. So, I've seen a bit of change in my industry and I'm still going. So, yeah, so I started off in regional journalism and that's mostly where I've worked through my career is either with daily newspapers or semi-daily newspapers and with industry magazines and industry publications and some PR for corporates and government communications as well. So, yeah, so so it's been quite an interesting and exciting career path to be involved in. I've been... I've had the opportunity to grab at opportunities. So I've worked with some really good editors over the years who've just, yeah, allowed me to say, uh, I want to do that and therefore, you know, allowed me to to jump in and, and do that. So whether that's working as a reporter in sport, like um, reporting national basketball or international cricket or or Aussie rules across to you know working in crime reporting and you know and also uh, working in ag so pretty much for the last where are we now so probably for about the last 12 to 13 years I've been specializing as an ag report agricultural journalist and or photojournalist because I take photos as well and in that space you know I've been able to use my skills as an investigative journalist as well as a general news journalist so yeah you know I find it's an industry there where if you're prepared to have a go there's a lot of support to have that go. Mm. Having said that though there are plenty of people out there that would turn around and say She's a change maker, and she, <laughs> and she. What what is the phrase that the guys used to say? Um, you know when when there is it. There is actually a word, isn't there? When you you know when you're actually a change maker. So when you're challenging 
status quo. There is actually a word and I can't think of it. I'm a journalist, you know. It's like I really, really, really laugh at myself when I struggle <laughs> when I struggle for language. <laughs> <laughs> True, yeah. Yeah, but like I remember oh, probably about six or seven years ago because I used to be involved in a in an Aussie rules team and so we had a we were having a, a reunion and you know, and, and the guys, yeah, they did. They just labelled me and they said, you know, you you know, that change maker term which we're going to come up with at some point, hopefully during this interview, during this discussion. And and I thought and I said to them, No, 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 I'm not and, and yeah, yeah, definitely. So that was their view of me, which I thought was rather cute, really. And that was a negative connotation that they had with that word was it no 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 that no very no no oh, very positive, positive. Yeah, yeah yeah very positive absolutely yeah no it was definitely about positive that i'd created Good. you know change um in a positive way because i was going to say that is a positive thing that's not a negative thing no 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 absolutely it was definitely as a positive not disruptor although disruptor can be positive as well it just God, I wish I could come up with it. I'll, I could Google it probably. I just keep coming up with things like girl boss, but that's probably girl not boss? what you're talking about. <laughs> what the? <laughs> Hashtag. I'll try, not, I'll try not to swear at that point going, what the? <laughs> well, we'll bleep you every swear, but no, my wife yeah. does wedding invitations and so that was one of the hashtags going around when she was first starting up her business was... Hashtag girl boss. Anyone yeah. who was uh, female and was online making money was a hashtag girl boss. Ah, uh, well, you know, that can be seen in a pos- as a positive too because, you know, see, I've been running my business since. So I exited the newsroom in 1999 and set up as in my own, you know, in my own business. And at that stage, you know, I looked around and and thought, what could I do? And there was definitely a space in ag journalism for female writers, and so female writers and female photographers, and you know, but but it wasn't. I would say it wasn't then that I became a specialist ag reporter. It was you know another ten years later that that was basically the bulk of of the work that I did from then on and also the organize a lot of the organizations that I work with whether it's government or corporate um, involved in the ag or rural space in some capacity so understanding all that is you know it's not just about understanding for instance that you know what a cow is it's understanding policy it's understanding policy around land use Water use, trade negotiations, breeding genetics—you know, even pasture genetics—you know, understanding diploid versus tetraploid, and yeah, there's just so much, so much to learn if you want to know, and and there's so much to write about if you want to, and and I still get to write about crime, which is you know a bit of a passion for for me, and I still get mm. to write about social justice yeah so you know there's there's so yeah I, I would say there's not much that I haven't chat there's not much that I haven't got to write about in my career one of the things that you think a lot about when it comes to agricultural reporting is biosecurity and that's what this episode's about yes that's right we, we did start to ramble a bit there hey no no not at all no 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 
Red tape can be a bit of a pain, Jeanette, but are there good reasons that we have strict biosecurity regulations in Australia? Oh, yes. Yeah. And I don't think we have any, like we're not unique in having strong biosecurity regulations and it really does make a, a huge difference in having them and obviously we're going to tease that out so I don't have to give a fulsome answer now. Mm. But see, one of the benefits of, of Australia is we're a continent, we're a country and we're an island. So that in itself gives us a significant level of security and I'm talking about this not just from a trade and producer or manufacturer perspective but as a, as a normal you know, resident in your neighbourhood, it it gives that person a lot of security too against, you know, a lot of diseases that are endemic across the world we don't actually see in this country. And, you know, so there's a number of reasons why we don't see them pest and we don't see that pest and disease incursion and that is we have some pretty strong policies around how we try to avoid that. We have uh, we have that status as a continent and an island and a country in one. So we don't just have people, you know, stepping across a borderline and then bringing in a pest or disease from another country that then becomes a major hassle for us. Having said that, though, we've certainly had a few recently in recent years that have that have um, tested tested us, and you know, and what that tests is it it tests the the population health, it tests the the trade rarity that we actually have, you know, that green and clean green and clean tag that's applied to Australia is 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 quite unique and, and very important because that clean tag is the one that's around pest and disease and in comparison to a lot of what's going on in a lot of other countries. And it means that we don't have many restrictions on what we can trade with other countries as a result of um, of that clean perception. We're going to really expand a lot of what you've just said there, but I guess let's play devil's advocate here for a second. Is there any risk for red tape going too far? Oh, I never thought about that. And I've been writing about biosecurity for more years and, and you know, in probably – hundreds or thousands of more articles than I could even begin to think about. Can it go too far? Well, John Doan, who's I, – I love this quote that was written in one of his poems and that no man is an island and, and nor is any country. Mm. So we don't want to be too – we don't want to exclude ourselves from being able to interact with the rest of the country. But having said that, I can see there's a trip factor in here, of course, because at the moment we're in the midst of a global pandemic and, you know, there's a lot of argument about either we should be completely open or we should be completely closed and I'm not going to buy into that. Yeah, let's not go there today, but (laughs) it is a good example. (laughs) I know, not today, but. (laughs) But it is a... A good example that is fresh on everybody's mind of biosecurity because that's exactly what we're talking about with this outbreak in the last couple of years. It's a biosecurity outbreak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that it's spread globally, there is no country, there's no community that's unaffected is a perfect example of if everyone doesn't 
have a respect for biosecurity and the importance of it to any particular country, but, you know, in Australia, particularly to Australia, then it can become, you know, awful, really. It can become Mm. really significantly awful. Mm. Yeah. And I guess we hope that the people who are making these rules have a realistic understanding of what actually goes on in the real world. And, you know, these are competent people. And I think we're lucky that most of the time that's the case. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yes. So, yes, red tape can go too far, but most of the time it's what is needed to keep society going. Yes. You always hope that it will be tempered with common sense. Good point. Yeah. So weeds, pests, and diseases can cause significant damage, as we've been saying. Jeanette, are there any recent examples that come to mind in Australia other than the one that we mentioned before, COVID? Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you for asking this question, Dan. So, for instance, back in, uh, I'm just trying to think, it might have been 2007. So there was an outbreak of tomato potato psyllid. And that was discovered by, that was actually discovered by a a very observant government employee who saw it on the on the tomato plant in his vegetable garden, and so that actually became quite a significant issue because you know we don't have TPP in in this country. It creates a a blight on the potato plant and in the potato veg the you know the vegetable itself and then and that looks that reduces the quality of the potato it looks quite ugly you know it really affects people's buying decisions and you know we really really didn't want the whole of australia to suddenly be showing signs of tpp so that led to state border closures and a real reduction in the movement of seed potatoes to you know into the horticultural and home garden industry and you know the the potato industry you know I'm going to be really vague about this considering I was only writing the last story I wrote about potato industry and and its status was only about four months ago but the potato industry is really really important to Australia we we export a huge amount of potatoes and you know one of the restrictions on trade with potatoes is that we don't import raw potatoes into this country. We do import frozen potatoes, processed potatoes, as you would see if you go into your freeze department, but we don't import fresh potatoes, and that's because we're actually one protecting our our farmers, but also protecting our country from the introduction of pests and diseases that can come in with those fresh potatoes. So again, it's that perception that Australia has clean produce to export and we don't want that to be affected by pests and disease. You know, rolling on to even more recently, even just this year, so, you know, we had, I think it was fall armyworm that was actually identified by an agronomist on a, a crop in Victoria and that's the first indication we've had of FAW being on a Victorian um, crop and, you know, we don't 
again, it's something that we don't actually want to be affecting our crops. And and capra beetle has been identified three times in in Australia, in New South Wales and WA and another state. But since I'm not 100%, I think I could actually say it, but I won't say which one it is because if I'm wrong, then that state government will probably be very pissed off with me. <laughs> and uh, but let's but definitely New South Wales and WA have identified it in shipping containers when it's actually when it's actually mm. arrived when those shipping containers have arrived and you know and yeah again it's a it's a bug that was just you know recognised by chance by an etymologist and and. And it's a bug we don't want in Australia because it's the devastating impact of any of these of these bugs can you know on our crops in particular and then on our trade status you know incredibly important. But having said that, you know it's it's quite concerning when the risk is is coalesced around the freak chance that somebody with an awareness of a particular pest mm-hmm. or disease sees it by chance and and then you know and that's how it's identified and and then we can actually you know draw a net around it so to speak in a metaphoric sense because you yeah. know we have we have three levels of of actioning biosecurity breaches in this country and the most common one that's that we see is the endemic, the endemic level? So that's the common one. Common one. The most common one that the population sees is the endemic level when it's when that breach becomes a local problem rather than a state or federal problem. And really, they shouldn't. No, none of them should ever go below being a Commonwealth problem because that's you know it's about security. Mm. So with something like cane toads, that's basically naturalised in Queensland, you're saying that. That is classed as endemic, so they just don't worry about it. It becomes a local issue to manage rather than – so it becomes an industry or, or pharma-centric issue to manage mm. rather than a government issue to manage. But because my dad lives on a farm with neighbours that have dams, just like he mm. has a dam, if he gets rid of all the cane toads on his property, it doesn't matter because the ones from across the road are just going to hop over his place anyway. That's absolutely right. Yeah. It continues to be his problem because even though he's got rid of it all on his property, the surrounding properties actually contain that pest. And so it can easily mm. come across the border onto his property. Yep. There's no group action against this pest. Oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to say that because I I don't think that would be accurate. It becomes an, as I said, it becomes an industry problem. Yeah, okay. So instead of government taking on the role and saying like, hey, guys, we're going to provide these incentives, these programs that we're going to eradicate this pest, basically getting everyone on board, it's up to each individual person and industry at large to get rid of these problems uh, basically without that support. And that's where it's really interesting, and that's where it's, sorry, not interesting, but it's really important that individuals take responsibility. So, you know, whether it's going to be 
getting a bag of manure from the local farm or, you know, going hunting overseas, not declaring that when you're coming back, not that anyone can go, you know, not that there's obviously only a privilege few can go overseas at the moment, but this is, mm, you know, this yeah, has been a long-term yeah. long term problem and, and will continue to be a problem into the future that, you know, if someone goes overseas, goes hunting or hiking in an area where there's an endemic disease, for instance, foot and mouth, and then doesn't declare that, so therefore their shoes and, and clothing that could potentially be carrying that, that disease, you know, doesn't get inspected by by border security and quarantine on the way in and then the, the next thing that the next time they wear those boots is you know hiking in rural australia and and they spread that disease and before you know it we've got a complete lockdown and we're looking at a situation like they you know like they looked at like they had in in britain both with the you know the swine fever and and I think it was FMD a few years previously, where, you know, wholesale slaughter of animals. And it's not just domestic, as in, you know, herds of cows and sheep. It would also be native animals. So the impact and the potential impact mm. on native animals is unquantifiable, you know, from a disease that could be easily prevented just by, you know, a little bit of courtesy at the border when you come back in and you go, well, look, you know, I did, I did trek through Nepal or I did go, I did go hunting, you know, through some other area and, and, you know, and those quarantine officials at the border should know what the disease risk and should be able to quantify it. And, you know, it's not about you being in trouble. It's about actually reducing the, the risk of bringing a disease into this country. And that's the responsibility of all of us. Hmm. You know, I- incredibly important to to understand that from an individual perspective. Just as it's important to think about, well, you know, am I am I bringing in something that was made, and I bought it in a local market overseas, whether it's made of wood or some other, you know, natural natural, you know, it could be dried fish, or it could be food that you're you've bought from overseas and you're getting imported and if you don't declare that and therefore it doesn't get checked then you know you you are potentially bringing in a really significant disease and going back to swine fever i mean that is a really serious issue in one of our northern neighbors at the moment and really really impacting on their economy and their agricultural production and you know, and I feel really sorry for them because it's an awful thing to consider that when you live a subsistence lifestyle anyway, then, you know, because there's a disease going through your livestock that it, that it, you know, it gets wiped, that it gets wiped out mm-hmm. and you have no choice. You have no control over it. And for years afterwards, mm-hmm. you also don't have the choice of being able to continue farming and making an income from that because of this, you know, situation of an easily avoidable disease just by personal responsibility by every single person. Mm, that's mm. what it comes down to. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, you know, and we, and I remember back when we first got in contact, when you first contacted me, you know, there was a bit of debate going on about the manure. Manure, that's right, exactly, you know, and, and, 
you know, traceability is is gold standard, you know, in this country in, and cr- incredibly important. And if, for instance, you go and buy a trailer load of manure, fresh manure from a farm and there's no record of that and, you know, we can probably extrapolate it out to, you know, if QR codes be- aren't being uh, utilised properly as through the pandemic, we're seeing that with, you know, the difficulty of contact tracing where people have been and when they've been there and, and all that kind of thing. Mm. It's the same It's the same with, you know, going and, say, getting a trailer load or a bag of, of um, manure from a farm and it's fresh manure. It hasn't been composted and you just lay it out on your vegetable garden and you don't know what pathogens you're actually introducing mm. into an urban environment or even into another environment where that pathogen doesn't exist. And, you know, that brings me to, you know, for instance, not necessarily a, not, not necessarily a soil-borne pathogen but a vector as in a mosquito or tick-borne um, disease that is a lot more prevalent in Australia than, than many livestock farmers realise because it, of, the way, of the way it's often just treated on farm. And I'm not blaming any farmer for the way it's treated on farm. You know, Teleria is something, is another disease that I've written a lot about and talked with scientists about. And, and I'm not, not by any means an expert in any of this. You know, I just, I just interpret it, you know, correctly for other people to be able to read about. Mm. So I, I, I have a little bit of knowledge, you know, of the entire. But, you know, Teleria is a tick-borne, vector-borne disease that can actually lead to the death of cattle and there's only one state in Australia where it hasn't been diagnosed. And, you know, that's uh, that's quite significant and, and mostly it, you know, Mostly it's the signs of, you know, a, a carotid pulse that's quite vigorous, production loss, thrift within the animal, heavy panting, and, you know, you get one or two of those dying in a herd. It's not something that you can, you know, you've got a large herd of, of, um, of cattle and mm. one or two deaths is not unusual. You know, it could be anything. It could be a snake bite. You know, it could be stress, mm. whatever. It's you. I find it's usually when a farmer has had a few cows die within a very short period of time. You know, a matter of hours. That then they'll bring in the vet, and the vet does a blood test, and and Teleria is one of those things that can be that that might be diagnosed. But it has ongoing production losses, and you know. But if we can clearly identify where it is, then it's not a matter of, you know, you can't move herds or anything like that. It's more a matter of, you know, that that responsibility of and that awareness of, okay, well, it's within the neighbourhood and it doesn't become such a shock to other farmers when it starts, you know, when they, when they start having a problem too. Because that's what I usually find is, you know, so, Farmers that have become really traumatized and quite understandably because they've got no idea why it's why suddenly 
you know, after 20 or 30 years, they've got a few cows died from telaria, you know. And it, be, and it can be even more traumatic because sudden death of livestock is a reportable situation. And I've spoken to, I've spoken to farmers, you know, around this, around, around Australia who, you know, suddenly found themselves in a situation of, of their farms in quarantine. They've got government people there suited up. You know, you, you think about the quarantine movies that you see on TV that are generally made in America and, Believe you me, that's exactly what they're suddenly facing. It's a very traumatic mm. experience and that's all to find out what's going on. And, you know, in in situations that are repeatably over and over again, avoidable by somebody else making a responsible decision about their actions rather than going, well, it doesn't matter because it's only me. You know, but you're one of thousands of people that think, Oh, it's only me, so it doesn't matter. Exactly right, Jeanette. When we're talking about biosecurity or biological security, we can use these imaginary lines that we like to call borders in our defense. So, like whether that's national borders, state borders, or like just property lines. Can you tell us how important are borders in this fight? So, yeah, so borders are really important. And, you know, we've got got a few examples of that in in Australia so probably probably one of the funny like I don't know it's not that funny really but you know we have this kind of bush ranger mentality in this country where okay you know they've they've closed that we can't go there but let's find another way of of going to do what we want to do basically and I remember during the Hendra virus outbreak, we're going back quite a few years ago now, could actually be more than a decade, I can't remember. And and for you know, for listeners that can't remember or aren't aware, so Hendra is a virus, it's a very simple explanation. Hendra is a virus that infects horses and actually can can actually cross the vectors to infecting humans as well. It's it's backborn, and so you know it's it's we have had some instances I think we've had a couple of humans that have died from their interactions with horses that have been infected by the Hendra virus and so when the Hendra virus affected the horse population to a considerable degree several years ago, there was a decision made to close the borders and and restrict movement of horses now i know very well that i know people that were moving their horses across borders in order to be able to participate in horse competitive horse events mm. you know i've forgotten all their names by now so it's no use you know any authorities <laughs> coming after me and wanting to to drill me about it but you know i couldn't i couldn't remember their names if my life was you know was um being held responsible put it that way it was too long ago. But, you know, so that, that was – and that was a known situation. I mean, there was there were government authorities that knew very well that people were crossing borders. I mean, for goodness sake, some of them were actually employed, you know, um, within government departments. So, you know, we have this kind of a bit of mentality that, well, it's not relevant to me, so therefore I won't do what I should be doing because, you know, I'm only a little clock cog in the wheel and, 
But when a 1,000 of us or 10,000 of us or a million of us have the view that it's not relevant to me because I'm only a little cog in the wheel and what I do won't make a difference, it actually does make a bloody difference. And, and you know, one of the biggest risks we have when it comes to a pest or disease in this country and a lot of money, millions are spent in trying to make sure it doesn't impact Australia is foot and mouth disease. And it's a livestock disease that not only has major ramifications for our livestock and our food security and our economy, but also if anyone, if people don't think that any of that's important, it will have major impacts on our native wildlife, our native, native fauna. So, for instance, if you, if you go hiking in Nepal or hunting in Nepal or in other countries where foot and mouth disease is actually known about as a disease and you come back into Australia and, and I know this isn't relevant for now, but it has been relevant in the past and it will be relevant in the future when, you know, we can, when we can go hiking or hunting in other countries again. You come back to Australia and you don't declare that you've been where you've been, basically. It doesn't matter where you've been, whether you've been to Paris and only walked on the cobbles of Paris or whether you've been onto a farm in, you know, in a third world country or, or you've been to New Zealand even, for goodness sakes. It's really, really, really important to declare that because then what you don't know is you don't know what are the pest and disease risks of, of simply that little lo- locale that you went into that now is now being carried by a parasite on your boots, on your dress shoes, you know, mm. on your clothes. And it gives the authorities the opportunity to not not say that you're in trouble because you're not in trouble. What you would be is you would be in trouble by not declaring it. So by declaring it, you're doing the right thing. They can actually look in your luggage and go, well, that that, you know, on what's on your boots we need to clean off, you know. That, you know, that food that you've brought in from overseas, that pig product, that, that wooden, wooden memento that you've brought in from wherever, you know, I'm not going to specify where, but from where, wherever, uh, that has potential for carrying a really serious pest or disease that, that will mean that we, that we close down entire industries and our, and the food security of the population is, you know, at significant risk. It's not just our trade relationships, it's the food security for our population. So we need to take that away. We need to actually make sure that there is no pest or disease in it. So by simply just doing that little thing, you, you know, you can continue around your life and your life is not impacted. But if you don't do that little thing and you do bring in, you know, you are one of those those one in one person among a million who don't think it's important, but it actually is, and you bring in that pest or disease. And then, for instance, you go hiking in rural Australia, or you go hunting through the bush, and or you, you know, put your wooden memento on the on your mantelpiece and, you know, what you don't know is that something comes out of it that then, you know, spreads in so eggs hatch and, you know, and you've got a pest that's 
that's going to become an endemic pest in Australia and, you know, potentially affect our trade relationships and, you know, because most of the produce that most of the food that's produced in Australia is part of our economic trade relationships. We produce far more than we actually need to consume mm. and and it has to be traded because other people otherwise, you know, we just don't have that economic overlay. Or, you know, all the pork product, for instance, that you've brought in from somewhere else and you go and have a picnic and you leave your, you know, beside a creek or a river and you, you know, just throw whatever you've got left in, you know, from that picnic into the river Mm -hmm. or leave it on the riverbank and it's consumed by another animal and it contains a disease that then wipes out the entire population of um, of fish species Mm -hmm. or native animals. That's your responsibility basically. Mm. So it comes back to that very clear little thing that you can do right at the start, which is declare where you've been and go, well, mm. it's going to be five five minutes of inconvenience. And look, I will tell you what I did. You know, I went to New Zealand and and I wanted, we went to farms and we went walk, we went hiking and other places. And so coming back, I ticked that box and the person that I was with wouldn't. But I thought, no, I will. And I had one scary moment because I ticked the box saying that, I, that I'd been onto a farm in another mm. country. And so they pulled me out of the queue and they took me into a little room. And I will just personally, I, uh, claustrophobia is something that, you know, mm. I can have a bit of a, an issue with, an anxiety level issue with. And they left me in that room and I just thought to myself, a number of words that I shouldn't say over the microphone, but essentially it was a heightened anxious, heightened anxiety of, mm. you know, I was suddenly in a small room on my own and I thought maybe I didn't do the right thing. And by the time I'd coalesced that thought, somebody else had opened the door and come into the room with essentially what was a foot bath for me to put my shoes into just the, just the soles of my shoes so that any potential parasites that were on those shoes were then destroyed and then i was i was then i was gone i was at the front of the queue but getting away out of the airport i actually had to wait for the person that i was with mm. but they didn't get their shoes yeah no mm. they didn't declare anything so they just had mm. to go in the long queue basically so it actually mm. will expedite you getting out of an out of a out of an airport if you do declare that you've actually done something that needs to be reported. Mm. So you know efficiency in time. Apart from that moment of alarm, it's not really alarming. It's it's just a really responsible thing to do. You know, and that dials us back to um, so you're in you know for instance, you know I've mentioned Hendra virus. So you know. Foot and mouth disease is a really, really, really major deal for this country. We don't have it. But the policy and procedures for dealing with it will mean an extensive lockdown across the nation. And we'll have, so, you know, for instance, any particular day, sale yards are open and, you know, animals are being bought and sold. And if FMD was identified, anywhere, anywhere. So it could take 72 hours for FMD to cross this country. So, yeah, so anywhere 
It doesn't matter if the outbreak is in Victoria you're, and you're in South Australia, for instance, or Queensland, you'll find that you will be all of a sudden stationary. And say if you're in sale yards, that sale yards will, will um, come to a halt. Animals will not be moved. Trucks will not be moving. Whatever you're wearing, you are expected to just dump and walk away in whatever the, re- the authorities provide you with as an alternate or it will all have to be cleaned on site and then you can put it back on. And, you know, it's, it's not just inconvenient. It's, it's a major issue. So, you know, milk, milk pickups will be affected. You know, it, animals will not be going to, you know, abattoirs, which no doubt will make animal activists really happy, but for all the people that eat meat, it will be a really significant issue. And then, you know, it's not just the impact on domesticated farm animals, it's the impact on our native fauna as well. And, you know, because, you know, we have a really significant population of feral animals in this country and they're highly susceptible to the disease and um, the potential to extrapolate that out and impact on our native fauna is something that's front of mind of pretty well every farmer and every policy geek that works in this space for a major disease outbreak. You know, it's not just the impact on the economy, it's not just the impact on the individual farmer's pocket, it's not just the impact on what they're doing on farm. I don't I've never met a farmer who's not concerned about our native wildlife and our native flora and the impact of any, you know, pest or disease on them as well. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. So that's why it's really important to you know, to understand that we, we have this really unique situation of being, you know, being an island and a continent and a country in one. I guess these borders say this belongs here, that belongs there, this doesn't belong here, don't let this cross over the border. And if there's an outbreak of something, this borderline is quarantined now. So that problem is held within that particular area. And whether that's on a national level, whether it's on a state level or whether it's just on your property, yeah, I think that borderlines act as a kind of a shield against outbreaks, essentially, when they're taken seriously. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and it's amazing what pathogens could be carried in raw manure in comparison to composted manure, because composted manure means that a lot of a lot of risky bugs have been killed and a lot of risky yeah. seeds have been killed. So, you know, the temperature that composting actually takes manure too, kills a lot of weed seeds, it kills a lot of parasite, and that's that means that you've really reduced the risk of moving a disease from uh, from one location into another. And, you know, fruit fly, and I've got a couple of girlfriends who will be absolutely pleased that I've just used that, that you know, used that <laughs> word. Because they work in this space, fruit fly is a prime example of very localized, a very localized pest that can have major impacts on production and therefore on availability of food. But, you know, it's also a state problem and it's a commonwealth problem. But, you know, it's managed locally and alerts are generally you know, quite localised and regionalised. So, you know, if it's identified in the Yarra Valley, for instance, or it's identified in the Riverina, 
you know, you won't you won't hear about it in Melbourne. You won't hear about that in Sydney. Mm. You won't hear about that in in Adelaide. But it's just impacted a really significant agricultural production area, and means that they have to do a lot, and I mean a lot, in order to be able to try and identify which orchards it's in, to actually kill the larvae. And when I'm saying that, it's, it's they try and do it holistically as possible. You know, the the I again, it comes back to the clean and green reputation of Australian food production. Is you know a lot of methods are around what's what's called these days integrated pest management. So we try not to use pest and disease control methods that are going to actually impact negatively on food supply so that people can feel comfortable that the type of food that they're getting if it's Australian produced is has got minimal inputs in the way of of something that could potentially harm human beings and where and that that is controlled by so much regulation it would just make your eyes pop and the amount of paperwork that you know farmers have to do Again, it comes back to, you know, the traceability. So they're not only responsible to themselves and their local areas, they're re- responsible to whoever's buying their produce to, you know, take it further, whether it's animals that are being put into a feed lot and then into an abattoir or if it's cotton that's then going to be processed into your sheets or your shirt that you're wearing or your, or your jocks or knickers or whether it's, you know, apples or corn or barley that goes into your beer or wheat that mm. is is going to be made into your bread or your or your pasta you know there's a, there's so much paperwork every step of the way not only about you know how it's been produced on the farm but even to how that variety of seed was actually produced so the traceability is quite extensive and it's all about the integrity of our food system. And so that's why when food producers are doing that job and doing it well and somebody just decides to ad hoc something and doesn't think about their responsibility in that, in that food chain, yeah, it can really have some serious ramifications. So yeah, so don't don't take that imported pork product down and um, down off down to your picnic area, and then leave what you don't eat behind for something else to consume. So Jeanette, we've talked about a few different examples of ways that we can bring biosecurity risks into the country or into your state or whatever, whether that's on your boots, whether that's in a meat product or just in a piece of wood or something like that. Or or another vector such as a fruit fly or a mosquito or a tick or, yep, pretty much anywhere Yeah, basically. exactly, or another vector. Yeah. Yep. So it, this is a really hard question to answer, but what should our listeners keep in mind when they're thinking about like biosecurity risks because I guess a lot of the time it's not that you're thinking oh I'm going to make a biosecurity risk here you just accidentally do it so what advice do you have to people to keep that in their mind moving forward like is there is that something you can say succinctly or is that just a lifetime of learning do you think I think it is daily practice and that that 
that probably sounds huge because it's like anything, you know, whether whether you meditate every day, you know, when you start to do something differently is always the hardest time to instill a practice. And what is it? I think mm. it's five five weeks to make or break a, a habit, mm. and we're all guilty of um, <laughs> of after three <laughs> days. After three days, it's all become too hard, you know. Mm. So yes, but I think it's I th- look, you know, I'm I'm not there to tell people what to do, but as a prescription, just understand that you each every single one of us has a role in traceability. And biosecurity, that biosecurity is not just the responsibility of the person that owns 10,000 acres, it's the, bio, it's the responsibility of, of every single individual. It, just, it doesn't mean that we've all got paperwork to fill in, but it means that lots of other people have got paperwork to fill in and the little bit that we do makes a huge difference. So, for instance, you know, we don't want to rely on an etymologist who buys a new refrigerator and opens that refrigerator and a beetle falls out and that person just happens by sheer coincidence or fates or higher power however you want to re- however you want to phrase it that person just happens to recognize that beetle and know that this doesn't exist in Australia and it has really significant impacts on our agricultural production. And so that person then reports that beetle to the people that it, that he or she knows need to know about it and, you know, an entire shipments get off a ship get impounded as a result. But going back a step, you know, it's, you know, each individual can declare something, you know, you can declare that, and I was only talking, I was, I actually met a woman only two weeks ago through a friend of mine. She brought her to lunch and and we were talking about biosecurity and she said that she went to visit a friend who'd moved. So bought her bought her this so her friend had bought her first home. So she, you know, they had a bit of a welcome barbecue. So she went there, she walked into the backyard and she, the first thing she saw was this grass species that should not be in Australia. Mm. So how did it get into Australia if every nursery in Australia would not have imported it? Obviously someone had to bring that seed in or they bought it from somewhere overseas and it was posted in or it was sent to them by a friend, you know, and it wasn't declared. And so, you know, so this woman's, these people that bought this home, fabulous garden, They've now, I mean, it won't be at a cost to them, thank goodness, but their entire garden, your backyard has to be, you know, has to be dismantled. Earth has to be, you know, earth movers have to come in. So the entire thing has to be taken out. The the soil has to be sterilised. It's a major, major logistical exercise and, okay, Taking all that contaminated soil and all those contaminated plants out is not going to be a cost to them, but replacing it will be. Mm. And that's so that's as simple as it is that, you know, a grass species that shouldn't be in this country was laid out. This house backs onto a state forest. 
So when that grass species, wow. so, yeah. so so it's so it's became quite it's become quite a logistical exercise. It's not just that backyard. Now they have to do surveys of the state forest to see if it's escaped into that state forest through seed, through birds picking up the seeds and pooing them out further afield, you know, all kinds of things like that. And if it gets into that state forest and we can't control it and contain it and deal with it, it spreads further and further and further and it becomes a really serious issue. So so does that make the hair raise, rise on the back of your neck and does that raise alarm bells? Because that's, that's as specific as it can be for just Joe Blow or, you know, or Jane Blow out there in the community. Absolutely. Especially when it's your house too. Your when house. It's not, you're not just renting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, you know, and you thought you bought this absolutely stunning garden that yeah. has turned into an absolute nightmare and it's not your fault and you're not being held responsible but you have a role to play in that. And thank goodness that this woman identified it, you know, identified the grass. Again, through sheer coincidence. So it's like the etymologist that opens the new mm. refrigerator and sees a beetle fall out. It's the it's the agronomist that recognized fall armyworm on on a crop, you know, in Victoria where it's never been in Victoria before. Yeah, you know, it's someone recognizing that a a bat-borne virus has actually made its way into the horse population and then crossed a vector and infected humans, and not only infected humans, but it's been fatal disease for humans as well as to horses. And yet bats can carry it quite reasonably, really. Yeah. Mm. So the vector that carries the disease or, or infection is not necessarily going to die from it. Sometimes we're really, really lucky. You know, we've seen that with some of the monkey-borne diseases that have crossed over into human populations that, you know, the monkeys get sick as well. But, you know, there are other vector, you know, there are other means of transporting those diseases where it doesn't actually affect the host. So it's not until it actually hits a susceptible population that we then understand that, hey, this is something that's mm. going to ring alarm bells and we need to do something about it. And we're constantly working retrospectively. So the more people that are on mm. board, and I believe you me, I love citizen science. I think we really, I think citizen science is one of our most powerful things in this country. You know, at the moment, it's the month for doing bird surveys in your backyard, 20 minutes. And then, you know, sit down for 20 mm. minutes one day and you, and, count how many birds you've got in your backyard and you've actually contributed to the National Bird Survey. How wonderful is that? And that's that's what you get to do as a citizen scientist. You don't have to have any qualifications beyond being able to see them or have someone with you who can see them. You can hear them um, and help identify them. So, you know, we have down where I am, we have, you know, we have a palanquin count, we have koala count, we have a plover count. You know, those occur at different times of the year. And it's about saying, okay, today we're going to get a heap of the population together and we're going to go and count koalas to find out 
a representative sample of how many koalas we have living in this region. Or we're going to go and do the pelican count because we do that on this day every year in order to see do we have a healthy population of pelicans. And so as a citizen scientist, you know, if something looks a bit odd, look, looks a bit different, it's a great idea to get an expert involved because, you know, because that can that can be really helpful. And it doesn't mean that you're in trouble. It means you're actually part of the solution. And I mentioned earlier, but I'll repeat it again, that trauma, the trauma of of being at the front line of a of a um, potentially serious issue with our food security system or food production system, I I cannot explain the ramifications of that trauma. And I can give you a couple of examples. So, for instance, I was talking earlier about Teleria, and you know one of the one there's a couple of reasons why. You know, people, well, there's a number of reasons why people think, oh, you know, one animal that dies on the property is not a really significant issue. It could be snake bite. It could be, you know, it could be just, you know, we all get old and then we die. But when you get, say, you know, say 10 cows that die or 10 sheep that die in a very short period of time, then, you know, people, farmers will mostly act, you know, they'll generally act upon that and go, well, look, this is a serious issue that needs a bit more a bit more of a look at and there's a few farmers that I've spoken to over the time where you know one one of the diseases that we don't have in this country anymore because we eradicated it more than a century ago is anthrax and but it can be it can have some incredibly serious impacts not only on our livestock production and our fauna but also on human beings but there's so there's been a few instances where I've been contacted by farmers who've been you know completely traumatized because you know in general and farmers don't like their animals just to die for no reason you know it's incredibly heartbreaking you know they feel very very responsible about their role in animal agriculture you know irrespective of what animal activists might like to claim i have never yet met a farmer, a livestock farmer who doesn't feel an incredible responsibility towards the animals that they that they actually farm. And so when I'm talking about trauma, you know, if you notify that, you know, say your state department or your, your local vet even and your local vet thinks, oh, there's a few animals that have died, I'm a bit worried, I think it could be notifiable, I'll let the state government know. And, and, that's, the, and that's the exact protocol that you would expect and and that's what should happen. And then all of a sudden you've got a team of people descending on your farm. Your farm's quarantined. They're they're dressed in quarantine gear. PPE is quite a confronting sight to see when, you know, you woke up that morning and you thought you were going to go around your day because, you know, one of the notifiable situations is anthrax. So mysterious deaths it's always ramped up to a really significantly high level until things have been eliminated. And that elimination occurs in a relatively short time, you know, within a few hours to 12 hours basically. But that can be a very traumatic situation for people to go through when they're not prepared for it. And as I said, I've spoken to farmers 
over the years a number of times, you know, who still carry that trauma of that, you know, significant disease or the suspicion of significant disease. And and we don't want to put we don't want to put the population through that, you know. This pa- this coronavirus tra- pandemic is is being traumatic enough for people, but you know, if you ramp that up into an FMD situation or heaven forbid, hopefully the pandemic won't get any worse in this country, you know, but in other countries it's been horrific. You know, we can, we've all got a, I suppose what I'm saying is we've all got a role to play. You know, one of the, you know, when Yoni's disease first hit our population in Australia and particularly in Victoria, and we, and I'm going back a long time now, I'm going back to last century, late last century, 1990s, the policy was wholesale slaughter of flocks. And there are still people that are depressed and traumatized by that because, you know, they didn't, they didn't start their day farming thinking that one day a disease would be classified in such a way by government departments that people would be able to come onto their properties and just wholesale slaughter the animals that one, they cared about, one that two, they cared for, and three, created the wool products that people wore, created the bedding that people slept in, you know, and created the meat that people ate. So, you know, whereas and farmers generally like to see their animals live a happy life, the wholesale slaughter of animals in front of each other is not only a traumatic experience for farmers, it's also a traumatic experience for animals. And, you know, so... And and that of course also affects the farmer as well because we're all sensitive and we all have sensibilities and you know humans we care a lot about each other and we care a lot about animals and plants and pretty much anything we care and if you take away hope from people it really doesn't put them in a good psychological situation so as I said you know the impact of Yoni's disease was the 1990s early 1990s. But I know farmers that are still carrying that that hurt and the depression and the trauma of that period and we're talking 30, you know, 20, 25, 30 years later. So, it's, um, you know, so that's also why it's important to be aware of biosecurity responsibilities individually because the the traumatic impact that it can actually have on people is something that, you know, I'd personally like to avoid. I don't yes. think it's fair. Yeah. Jeanette, I always like to ask our listeners at the end of the episode, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about? As a journalist, that's actually the last question I always ask in an interview oh, really? too. So, well <laughs> well done. Um, yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there something I didn't ask you? Is uh, is the last? Is is you know is something that we're taught? Mm. I actually don't know if there's anything we haven't covered. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> no, we have covered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So probably just yeah, just probably leave it at that. Thank you. Yeah. No worries. Thank you so much. Where can people find your journalistic work? We'll have links in the show notes. But can you tell them? Okay. Well, look, I, I, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well. But, you know, I, I'm rigorous about who follows me on Facebook and Insta. 
whereas Twitter is just open to the world anyway, so it doesn't really worry me too much. But I do have a blog. It's Jeanette Severs, and it's a WordPress WordPress site, and that's where I put links to a lot of the work that other publications, like the work that I do for publications. When that is actually published online, then I will generally put a link to it on my blog. And mm. yeah, but yeah, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm a journalist, and that means if you Google me, you will f- you will be inundated with information about what I've written about. Totally. Well, if our listeners aren't already on Twitter, I would have to tell them once more to hurry up and get on Twitter because that's the main place where I like to hang out in terms of social media too. So get on Twitter. Oh, yes, absolutely. And look, you know, I tell people I'm on Twitter and they immediately, you know, a lot of people go, oh, my God, really, why? You know, because if you listen to some commentators and if you listen to, you know, politicians and that kind of thing who when they want to bag journalists they just waffle on about twitter being a toxic environment etc 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 and look i agree twitter can be a toxic environment just the same as you know any pub can be but i also liken it to a pub or a party and you can choose who you want to talk to Mm. i find it's a really great place to hang out pretty much everyone that bags Twitter is actually on Twitter, so I don't know what they're doing if they want to bag it and they actually want to be part of it too. <laughs> but if you want to be part of a conversation, it's a good place to be part of a conversation, isn't it? And Yeah. And I find it – I don't use it as a resource as a journalist, although there'd probably be a few people that would say that, you know, I've interviewed them because we've connected on Twitter. Yep, definitely. Mm-hmm. But most of the people that, you know, that's only a very rare thing and it was always, you know, I don't think they would bag me for it. Um, most of the people I'm on Twitter with are actually part, I'm on there to be part of a conversation. Most the ag the ag people, mm. brilliant to hang out with. They are. Yep, they are, aren't they? All commodities are represented. You really get a feel for how passionate people are about, you know, what they're producing and, and not only about what they're producing, but, you know, how they're doing it, learn a lot about technology by hanging out with ag people. And look, there's some great, there's some really fantastic scientists out there as well, not just in the ag space. There's Mm. fantastic people that are involved in medicine that are on it, some really cool surgeons. You know, you you pick a subject, there's somebody, you know, that's created a community, there's a community about that subject on Twitter and, you know, just 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 block the trolls, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, block and mute them and, you know, just ignore, ignore them. I don't say that, you know, they're not of value, but, you know, you don't actually have to engage in conversations you don't want to engage in. That's exactly right. And yeah. I like it because it's a text-based platform, so it's not like Instagram where it's all about the image. It's all about text, which is sort of how my brain works. I like to talk about ideas and discuss stuff like that, which is tw- yeah. Twitter's perfect for that. Yeah, yeah. As I said, it's like it's like a party or a pub. You pick who you want to mm. who you want to talk with. If somebody's boring or bore or just boorish, you know, there's three different definitions there, people you can actually move on to another group and and engage with them and and have a nice time. Yeah. And learn, and, and meet meet people from all over the world. I mean, one of the first people I met in get involved in cropping is a bloke from 
who's 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 an Australian who's working over in Ukraine, you know, and and there's quite a few Americans that I'm connected with in in ag, you know, and it's great to hear about what they're doing in in America. Pretty well, any country really. I'm connected with a French astronaut, and it's fascinating what he puts up. Mm-hmm. I love I love the videos that NASA <laughs> puts up on his behalf. Really cool. Mm. Yeah, anyway, rab- exactly. Rabbiting on, on far too much as usual. No, no, that's what it is. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. This has been fun. Thank you for really, coming really, on. Really, no, I really appreciate you reaching out and asking me to. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it's a cracker. Hope I haven't, hope I haven't disturbed anybody too much with my views about biosecurity. I'm sure it's pretty cool, really, if they think about it no. and listen to it twice. And I do encourage our listeners to listen to episodes twice because you do pick up a lot on that second listen, especially if it's a topic you haven't thought a lot about. And it's not Mm. just important in agriculture. It's also important in horticulture, landscaping, uh, backyard veggie gardening, everybody who is essentially living and moving around and especially gardening should be keeping biosecurity at the front of their mind at all times. Oh, absolutely. And you know, like, Coming back to gardening, and as you would know, I'm pretty passionate about my roses. And you are. years, years and years ago, gorgeous old lady that I knew, she used to take care of her her roses. Like obviously, aphids are a bit of a problem for roses, at particular times of the year. She used to get out at dawn, and the jet blast on her on her hose. She used to use that against the aphids, but she also taught me, and this was far more relevant for me, being in an area that, you know, is almost constantly in drought and only having rainwater, is she also taught me about that soap, garlic, water combination that you can make up yourself and spray on your roses. And Mm. it's really, really, really good and beneficial for all the other, all the predator insects but it takes care of your aphids and so you know so that's that's and that's biosecurity that's looking after the beneficial predator insects who will come along and eat your aphids but it's about mm. it's about when you've got a huge infestation of aphids you can help those predator in, in insects out by you know making up this holistic spray and uh, spraying it on them, a bit of Lux soap, a bit of garlic and a bit of water all mixed together, spraying it on the aphids and and they'll stop sucking the sweet nectar out of your um, out of your rosebuds and give the predator insects a chance to actually take control of the population. Exactly, Jeanette, exactly. Yep. We have yep. these systems at our disposal. Nature's already using them. Totally. We may as well learn them and just... Yeah, go with what she says because she's pretty pretty clued yep. in. She's pretty clever. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I could tell mountains of stories about her, but, she, you know, she was pretty cool. <laughs> and, you she know, is like, pretty cool. This is, this is and like, you can get rid of this if you want to or anything, but, you know, like one of the social issues we're discussing at the moment is sexual assault and that kind of thing. She was a land girl. So back in the um, back between the two wars, so First World War, she was actually a land girl and she was actually, she had to deal with the assault of a soldier who kept harassing her 
on her walk back home from the um, from where she was working to where she was accommodated back that long ago, a hundred years ago. It's not a new issue. It's just as a society, we just um, <laughs> think it's too hard an issue. Just like we keep thinking biosecurity is mm. too hard an issue for each of us individually. Oh, that was a bit of a homily. That was. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. But I think you're yeah. right. And I think as well, another good thing about society is that we're now more, um, I guess, attuned to it. So it's like we won't just accept it anymore. So when we see yeah. it, we'll probably yeah. say something about it. And whereas maybe back in the past, um, you know, if the priest uh, did something to you when you were a kid, no one really was there to listen to you. So uh, a lot of things probably just went by. Yeah, you know what, mate? I think it's systems and institutions. Like I grew up in a, I don't, I grew up some, like where I grew up is not where I live now. But in the community I grew up in, it was well known that what the brothers were doing, and you know, and it wasn't just the brothers. It was a, there was a system, an institutionalized system, and it's been very, very well covered in some of our royal, within the Royal Commission investigations. It was well known, but it was about what were people going to do about it. So, you know, we can either choose to ignore or we can act. And I think these days we probably have we have more more support for for acting than to not act. Hmm. Yeah, that's probably hmm. the difference. And so that's still a long every- way to go, but. Yeah. yeah, but you know, each individual does their thing, and so you know, look mm. after look after the predator insects on your rose bushes. Yeah, by exactly. trying to keep the yeah, give them enough aphids yeah. to eat, but not so many that it becomes overwhelming. Well, there we go, Jeanette. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> uh, great! Oh my god, it's amazing what comes out of my mouth some days. It always surprises me. <laughs> Well, I hope our listeners are surprised as well, and I hope they've learned a lot about biosecurity. Oh, look, I agree. I hope they have, and I hope they've been entertained. And, yeah, you know, be relaxed. Just be relaxed, people. Thanks very much, Daniel. Be good people. Use your common sense. Yeah, that's right. Good man. Catch you later. Biosecurity is no joke. If you think you found something that's out of the ordinary, you can contact your agriculture department. The quicker we eradicate biosecurity threats, the less damage they're able to do. If you like this sort of content, please do yourself a favour and follow and subscribe for weekly episodes that can be pretty varied. Tomorrow, Monday the 5th at 1pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, I'll be appearing live on the Bird Emergency Podcast with Holly from BirdLife Australia to speak about designing and maintaining gardens for birds and wildlife. But if you miss it, I'll be uploading the episode to this podcast next week. So I don't have the data in front of me and if anyone wants to look me up, they'd probably find some stories that would have my name on it where I've actually written about this and got all the data there from different government departments and that kind of thing. But it wouldn't take, it would take, it would be a matter of hours.
if there was an if there was a foot and mouth disease outbreak in this country, trucks would stop moving, borders would close. Um, so I'm not even talking about the wholesale slaughter of animals, which you know I can talk about a, a little bit later as well about the impact of that because we've we've actually had that in this country for another disease. But you know, so animal there'd be there'd be widespread slaughter of animals and of livestock, but then there's also considerable risk to our native animals. So there'd be there'd be a fair number of feral pests such as pigs and deer that would be at risk. But you know, we've also done some quantifying around the risk to native native grazing animals and and there would be a, a significant quantifiable risk to them as well but you know there there would be you know milk would not be picked up from dairy farms there would be any animals that were in the sale yards would that's where they'd have to stay in fact people would have to restrict their their movements as well so you know for instance if there was if there was a, and there would be any day of the week in this country, in this, in, in any state, there would be several sales of livestock occurring in sale yards. And so could you imagine that suddenly there would be an enforceable ring around that sale yard so you couldn't enter it or leave it until you would be cleared and you couldn't even take your clothes and boots out you would have to change into clothing that was provided for you and leave behind that. So there would be a massive impact on the population. And again, it's a parallel with what's happening now, funnily enough. So there's a really strong, you might be getting, there's a really strong sense of command and control around, uh, around biosecurity and you'd be absolutely correct in that. You'd be absolutely correct in that. The so you know food food milk a lot of product you know just wouldn't be getting around the country simply because it couldn't not until it was contained and controlled and containing control believe you me is a very extreme measure for some diseases and pests it's not just a very localized situation it can become a very extreme situation and then you've got a real issue around food security. So that's one example. 